0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Merry Christmas. Can I say that yet? It's December, right? Yeah? love it. People are just nicer in December, aren't they? Like your checker's nicer, your waiter's nicer. People don't drive any nicer, but it seems like they're nicer. Um, how is everybody, good. guys? Yeah, yeah, good. Thanks for coming out. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna um, I'm just gonna pray, and then we're gonna jump right in tonight. We got a lot of ground to cover, so hope you guys are ready. Everybody, get a handout. Yeah, everybody. Okay, if you didn't get one, they're uh, back at the uh, info desk. So we're calling that info desk, and I think there's some pens back there too. If you guys need pens, you want to take notes. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna invite you guys because. Um, I don't want to spend 30 minutes trying to uh, get everybody excited about Jesus, so I'm just going to ask you guys right now to turn your attention even now and just spend about 20 seconds on your own just engaging the Lord and asking God to speak to you tonight, and then uh, I'll pray and we'll, we'll get into the word. Father God, we're here uh, because we want to hear from you. Uh, We're not here because uh, we want to be at a social event. Um, There's a lot of more cool things we could be at. we're here because we want to hear from the living God. We're here because we respect and admire and adhere to your holy scriptures. And we want to place ourselves under the authority of that anointed living word of God we want to learn the stories of your redemption and your grace through mankind's history. So, God, would you be our shepherd, be our pastor, be our leader tonight. Jesus, would you sit um, and as we w- w- may we sit a- a- and listen to you, God, as you proclaim to us the truth of the kingdom. And, God, may our hearts be open to all that you will say to us tonight, we pray for the prophetic word of God to be spoken tonight in a way that will change our lives, that will lead us to a crossroads, that will confound us, that will cause us to squirm even in awkwardness, Lord, as we realize the severity of what you call us to. So Lord, we just pray for you to speak tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh Jesus is is sitting by the sea trying to have some alone time, which he tried to do every so often and never really worked out so good. I guess that's what happens when you have the words of life, Um, no one will let you sit alone. So he's sitting by the sea of Galilee trying to have some alone time, and of course, naturally this big giant crowd just starts to come around him, and, and they're ready to hear him speak. This man from the Galilee that brought words of great power and great profundity. They wanted to hear from this man, so he he climbs into a boat and he pushes off from the shore a little bit, as he did often, which was just a way of uh, getting his voice to project over the water. And as this crowd is listening, waiting for each word to come out of his mouth, anticipating what he's going to say, he begins to tell a parable. He begins to tell a story about a man who went out to sow some seed. And this would have been a story that would have highly resonated with these people. This is an agrarian society. These are people that they work in the fields; they know all about planting seeds, and so Jesus engages their their hearts and their minds with this parable where this sower goes out to sow seed and he 's scattering the seed in the field there 's all these different things that sort of happen to the seed. The, the first thing is as Jesus throws it out, um, it, it, it sort of falls along the wayside, and the birds come down and snatch up the seeds. And then he says there's another seed, and that seed uh, falls into soil, but it falls into shallow soil, soil where there's no depth, and the roots can't sink down and can't soak up nutrients. So naturally, when the sun comes out, it scorches uh, the plant or scorches um, the seed, and, and it doesn't grow. And then he says another seed falls into the thorns, and as it begins to grow, it starts to choke out the seed, and it dies. But there's this fourth seed, the fourth and final seed that he talks about. and He said this seed falls into good soil and it grows and it takes root and it becomes a beautiful plant and Jesus goes on to you know illustrate this parable and say what the different seeds represent but I don't really want to get into that tonight because that's not the focus but what I do want to say to you is that 75 percent of the things that God says to you probably don't land on good soil I don't how do you know that well three out of four right? One of the seeds landed on good soil. Now, whether Jesus is talking about the non-believer receiving Christ, or whether Jesus is talking about the believer actually believing and, and allowing the word of God to sit and, and, and be planted in our hearts, it doesn't really matter. The truth is the truth, and that is that the word of God, even when presented, does not always take root. And the reality of this parable, what it tells us is that it's not hearing, it's not hearing the word of God, it's life change. It's not hearing the word of God. It's not just simply acquiring biblical knowledge. It's not just coming to Bible studies uh, like this and understanding more intellectually what the word of God says. That that doesn't change your life. That doesn't affect your life. It won't change anything. If anything, it's dangerous. You become a Pharisee. You you think that you're justified because of your biblical knowledge. So uh, I invite you guys tonight not to biblical knowledge I invite you guys tonight to the prophetic word of God that changes life. And that has, every, that has very little to do with the truth itself and everything to do with the soil in which it lands. Tonight, you guys, we are looking for the prophetic word of God. And, and that's just a teaser for, for sort of what we're going to talk. We'll flush that out as we go. But if you guys have your Bibles, uh, t- turn them open to 1 Kings. Uh, I don't know, oh, there it is. There's our Old Testament overview slide. So we're in a series called Old Testament Overview. And this has been, uh, I don't know how else to say it. This has been a life-changing study for me. Uh, probably more for me than for you guys. Um, you guys get 40 minutes of me bumbling through a sermon, uh, I get 30 hours of soaking in the word. So for me, this has been like life changing. Just the amount of time that I've spent in the word for these teachings has absolutely been transforming me. And what we've been doing is we've gone from Genesis, we're all the way to 1 Kings, we're tackling one book, uh, basically a night, and we're just trying to digest Uh, the the book in, in a totality. We're trying to fly over it in a way that allows us to see kind of the whole narrative, the whole theme of the book. As I've said, every single Wednesday, sometimes when you read the Bible, you flip it open, you read a story or a verse, you start trying to figure out what it means, you get in the weeds really fast. So what we're desiring to do is to get up above the weeds to see the big picture of what God is doing in the fullness of time with his people, the full narrative of God's redemptive work. Um, and it's been really cool, <laughs> really exciting. There's so much that we haven't even got to get into. But one specific piece uh, that is extremely important to understand that we have brought up time and time again and that we will continue to bring up is this idea of kingdom. Okay, And to understand the book of Kings, I have to talk to you guys about the subject of kingdom a little bit. That's spiritual language, right? You've heard Jesus talk about kingdom all the time, kingdom comes up. We use that in church all the time, kingdom this, kingdom that. Well, kingdom is really in a, a huge and essential, a fundamental, a core theme to the entirety of the Bible. If you don't understand kingdom, you're not going to understand really what's happening here, especially the book of Kings. When God created man in the garden, Adam and Eve, he placed him in what we would see as a garden, but what God saw is a kingdom. The garden was a kingdom, and Adam was... Assigned to be the ruler of that kingdom under the headship and the rule of God. Adam was called through the cultural mandate to cultivate the garden and to turn it into what? A city. To take the raw material of the garden and to turn it into what would eventually, hopefully be a kingdom city, an eternal kingdom city. But Adam blew it, stepped out from the rule and reign of God and the kingdom that was once flourishing under God's rule now became a cursed kingdom, a kingdom ruled by man. And I'll tell you guys, if you don't believe me that man is terrible at running a kingdom, read Kings. Okay? Read Kings. Kings is the living proof of the ineptness of man to rule kingdoms. Man is incapable. Adam proved it. And every king in the line of David proved it as well. Okay, so this theme of kingdom, it runs all throughout, from Adam all the way up through Abraham and and Moses and Joshua and the judges, God was sort of building towards this kingdom. And it culminated in one man, and his name was David. And we looked at his life last week in the book of 2 Samuel and, and really understood the life of David. And David was the closest thing that Israel ever had to a true king and a true kingdom. He was a terrible king, though, at the same time. David did a lot of good things. He did a lot of really bad things. But ultimately, God is building his narrative through all of the scriptures, and not just the scriptures, but even in right now, 2,000 years after Christ lived, towards this ultimate thing called kingdom. When heaven and earth are united in one. When Christ comes back in fury and cleanses the world of all sin and iniquity and sits himself on the throne eternally forever, and earth and heaven become one, the kingdom of God. This is a biblical theme that we have to understand. And it's important to understand this because kings is the failed attempt over and over and over and over again of man to rule kingdom. Okay, It's the failed attempt of man to to rule kingdom. So in your handout, I have what is the king what is king's the book of? Okay, and if you want to write it down, it is the book of the failed kingdom of man's rule. The failed kingdom of man's rule. I also gave you guys a couple of things, and I'm not gonna dig too much into these just because I don't have time, but these are for you guys to take home and use on your own. Um, one of them I'll get to in a minute, but this guy here, this is a timeline of everything from Abraham um, all the way up to basically when Christ comes, okay? And it's just, it gets you kind of a feel for the different segments of time that we've been looking at, And, and one thing that I want you to notice on this is that there is one little blurb here, and it's called United Kingdom and Two Kingdoms. The timeline, the part in this timeline that we are at is basically right here where it says Two Kingdoms. Okay, that's sort of the blip that we're at in in this this timeline, if you will. So I want you guys to take this with you, use it for your own um, personal study. But the thing that that today and tonight we're going to look at in in 1 Kings is really the beginning of the end for the kingdom. Okay, it's the beginning of the end for the kingdom. Uh, We'll get into this and we'll look at this uh, probably next week and even um, after that. But what will eventually happen is if David was the best king, human king, it's all downhill from there, all the way to the point where Israel is literally uprooted out of their kingdom and pulled away by, in the north, the Assyrians, in the south, by the Babylonians, completely exiled and ripped out of their homeland. That's how bad the rule and reign of man ultimately is. So in your handout, I asked you, what does the failure of Israel's kings lead to eventually in Israel? It ultimately leads to exile. And that's a big important part to understand in biblical understanding is that all of this is leading to this event called exile where Israel would literally be ripped out of their homeland and taken away and then we have all kinds of history from there. So having said that, let's take a look at the book and try to make some sense of it. Uh, I'll be honest, there's a lot of stories here. This is really hard to get through all of it, so I may miss a few little things. But I'm going to try to give you guys sort of a diagram and out, an outline so that, that we can take all of the stories and put them into uh, something that makes a little bit of sense. So here it is. Here uh, it is. First Kings can be separated into four uh, components, okay? Um, You can write this down if you'd like. Uh, The first component is this, chapters 1 through 11, and it's essentially the reign of King Solomon. So we're going to look at that, the reign of King Solomon. And then, secondly, we're going to look at the split of the kingdom. The split of the kingdom. Thirdly, we're going to look at the downward trajectory of the kingdom. And fourthly, the prophetic word of God. Through Elijah, So that's kind of our, our framework, the four different movements, the four different components um, of 1 Kings. Let's just start to work through those. So let's start with the first one, the reign of Solomon. The book of 1 Kings, if you remember, um, opens up right where 2 Samuel left off, and that was David as an old man. David has run his course in life, and 1 Kings opens up with him basically um, being on his deathbed. Uh, the book of 1 Kings is not about David. Okay? It's not about David, but it does open up with his death, but we have a little bit of overlap in 1 Kings where we see David interact with his son, Solomon. Uh, the first part of 1 Kings is really about Solomon's rise to power. It's where he goes from being just really this young man whose mother was Bathsheba, whose father was David, to becoming the king of the United Kingdom of Israel. So what happens in, in the beginning of Kings is this man named Adonijah. Everybody say Adonijah. Okay, Adonijah was David's Oldest son at the time, second to Absalom. But if you remember, Absalom died in Second Samuel. So King Adon- or Adonijah usurps the throne after David dies. He actually before David dies, he tries to usurp the throne, place himself on the king or as the king of Israel, and Bathsheba isn't having it. Okay, Bathsheba is Solomon's mommy. She comes to make sure that her little boy gets on the throne. Okay, so she comes to David's bedside and says, "Hey, your son Adonijah is taking, uh, p- making plans to take over the throne, and and you sh- Solomon's supposed to be the king." So David kind of conspires with. Um, with Bathsheba to come up with sort of this plan, and they send the, the prophet Nathan, and in this time, Nathan uh, or the prophets were the ones that were responsible for declaring who the king was going to be. So David sends Nathan, the prophet, uh, behind Adonijah's back, and he goes and he declares Solomon to be king, solidifies his rule. The people all gather around Solomon, he has all of the people on his side, and, and he becomes king. So Solomon is the next king in the line of David. And you guys are probably familiar with Solomon. He's one of the more famous kings uh, for a lot of different reasons, as we'll see. But Solomon didn't get off to a great start. He didn't get off to a great start because unlike David, who, if you remember last week, was very patient in waiting for his throne. He didn't go and kill Saul. He didn't take things into his own hand. He didn't try to assassinate uh, anybody or anything like that. Solomon, right off the bat, is working and weaseling his way into the throne. Okay? Not a good start. And then as soon as he becomes king, the first thing he does is has Adonijah, his half-brother, and Joab, who was responsible for trying to keep Solomon out of the throne, put to death. He murders them to solidify his rule and to solidify his reign. Now, militarily, politically, that may have been a great move. Uh, as far as God's concerned, terrible move. Okay? I'm the king now. I'm going to put to death anyone who disagrees with me. That never goes well. Now what I want to point out to you really quick is if you go to 1 Kings chapter 2 verses 1 through 6 is this quick interaction between David on his deathbed and Solomon so basically, uh, so, David's basically giving sort of this rite of passage, this moment uh, to David where he, he kind of tells him what he needs to know to be a king. And David could have said all kinds of things in this moment, right? David had quite a bit of life experience. He was the man after God's own heart. But it's interesting here what he chooses to pass on to his son Solomon before he takes the throne. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. He says to Solomon, he says, "...be strong, show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes and his commandments and rules." Um, he goes on, skip skip down now to verse 5. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed avenging in time of peace for blood that he had been shed in war. And then down in verse 6, he says, Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. There you go, Solomon. Here's my final words to you, okay? Uh, He starts off kind of good. He says, hey, obey the Lord, okay? Obey the Lord, be obedient, because if you obey the Lord, you'll be prosperous in all your ways. And by the way, get Joab, get him. Don't let him mess you up, okay? Remember, Joab killed David's son, right? Joab was a thorn in David's flesh all through his story. And so what really is happening here and what I really want you to see is that David had a choice, What am I going to impart to my son Solomon before I die? What he chooses to impart to him is the knowledge that he needs for life to be comfortable. Hey, if you want your life to be good, get rid of Joab, obey the Lord, and you'll be fine. But what's interesting to me is what he doesn't tell Solomon. The most important thing that David could have given Solomon was the understanding of God's heart. What, David, what made David a great man was not his military rule. It was not his ability to unite the kingdom. It was not his strength or his valor or even his wisdom. What made David a great man, as we looked at last week, was that he knew God's heart. And here he is with his son about to die and take his last breath. And the last thing that he chooses to share with him has nothing to do with God's heart. Rather, it's simply obey and take care of Joab and you'll be fine. David... Why didn't you share with your son the abundance of who you are and what made you a good man? What made him a good man was that he understood God. Listen to me, guys. This is a side note, but listen. Don't make the mistake of only preparing your kids for comfort and success. Don't make that mistake. Prepare them for eternity. We have this tendency to want to only share with our kids the things, oh, just just do the right thing and you'll be happy. Just get an education and you'll be fine. Just work hard, son. Just get out there and do the right thing. That's not enough. We don't want comfort for our kids. We want eternity for our kids. They need to know the heart of God through you, not moralism. They need to know the heart of God through you, not how to get a good job and get a good education. That stuff is not matter in the eternity. David, what, why didn't you share with Solomon What really made you tick? And you see all through Solomon's life that he was a very wise man. He was a very powerful man. He was a very strong man, but he didn't have God's heart. He didn't know God's heart. He wasn't taught to. His dad did not teach him God's heart. The greatest thing that David could have taught him. So Solomon reigns. In in chapters 1 through 11, we see all about Solomon's life. The first thing Solomon does as king is he marries a woman from Egypt, Okay, which if you've read the Bible, you probably remember that that is not okay. God says don't marry foreign women for good reason. Okay, Don't marry foreign women for good reason, and you'll see why. So first thing Solomon does is he's thinking politically. He's thinking, how do I establish myself on the scene as a king? So he makes a pact with Egypt by marrying into Egypt, by marrying a daughter from Egypt. And then we see kind of in chapter 3 this really good thing that Solomon does. It's probably the high point of Solomon's life. Solomon comes before the Lord. Let's take a look at it. First Kings chapter 3, verse 7. He comes before the Lord, and he says this to God. He says, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, to many, uh, many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? And it pleased the Lord, verse 10, that Solomon had asked for this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. And he goes on to say that I will give you riches also in addition to wisdom. So what's happening here, if you missed it, is God sort of gives Solomon this grant one wish genie in the bottle kind of thing, okay? Hey, Solomon, what what can I do for you? and Solomon says I'm just a young man I don't know how to rule like my father I don't know how to make good decisions so Lord would you give me wisdom so that I can rule my people okay now the Lord seemed to be pleased that Solomon didn't just simply ask for hey can I have a lot of money you know hey can you make me affluent can you make me rich uh, the lord seemed pleased uh, about that so god grants him wisdom now we wrestled with this in the book of ecclesiastes we went through ecclesiastes together about a year ago which is written by by solomon and i really wrestled with this okay what if solomon is so wise why is he so dumb you know like well, uh, what are you talking about sam like go read ecclesiastes Okay, uh, he, he re- Solomon like, spent his entire life trying to figure out the meaning of life. And to me, I think to myself, why is the wisest man in the world unable to realize that the meaning of life is God? Why is he unable to realize that? If God gave him this wisdom and he was so wise, where did he go wrong? But here's the issue. Solomon asked for wisdom, but wisdom is only as good as your reason for wanting it. Notice what what he says. He says, Lord, give me wisdom so that I can rule my people. Not a bad thing to ask for. But is it the best thing to ask for? He didn't say, God, give me wisdom so that I can know your heart. Give me wisdom so that I can understand the fullness of your nature. No. He prayed, give me wisdom so I can be a good king. And that's what God gave him. He gave him the kind of wisdom that made him prosper in the earth, gave him the kind of wisdom that made him be able to make good decisions in the earth. However, he didn't have the wisdom to know eternal wisdom. He didn't have the wisdom to know that God was what Solomon truly needed. And you see Solomon wrestling in the depths of his bones with the sickness of man all through his life, unable to come up with a true and authentic and real answer as to why he's so darn unhappy. God, give me wisdom for eternal thoughts. Oh, Solomon, if you had only asked for that. I'll give you anything. What do you want, Solomon? God, give me wisdom to know you. I tell you the story would have looked completely different. Completely different. Because as Paul says, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Wisdom cannot give you what prophetic But what the prophetic word of God can. Earthly wisdom cannot unlock to you the truths that your soul is longing for. Reading it knowledge and history and science and mathematics, if they are not inhabited by the prophetic word of God, cannot rest your soul. They cannot. And Solomon is a testament to that forever. But Solomon goes on, he lives his life, and he's a powerful man. He is considered to be the most powerful king in all of Israel, the most rich king in all of Israel, and his... Uh, his power and his prestige spread like wildfire all throughout the world. People knew about Solomon. He was established on the world scene. We know that because the queen of Sheba, who was a foreign woman from far away, came all the way to Israel, all the way to Jerusalem just to have a conversation with this man, Solomon. She'd heard about his riches. She'd heard about his wisdom, and she came to question him and see if he was really as legit as everyone had said that he was. And turns out he, he was. She was very impressed by Solomon. So he was very well-known in all of the world, and Solomon did one thing that was very, very good. He built God a temple. He built God a temple. That's one of the things that Solomon's very famous for. He built God a temple. Now, little fun fact, okay, a little side note here. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this. I didn't really, this never fully hit me until I went to Israel and really kind of thought about it, but there was more than one temple. Do you guys know how many temples there were? I'm holding up the, oops. There's three. You know how many temples there are? you know how many there were? You'll never guess. Oh, three. There were three temples, actually, and Solomon's was the first. Solomon's was the first. When Israel went into exile, which we'll look at really quite a bit for the next uh, few months coming up, when, Sol- when, when Israel went into exile, Solomon's temple was destroyed, and then there was no temple for a really long time. And then through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, a small remnant of Israel came back and tried to rebuild Solomon's temple, and that was sort of the second temple which quickly was destroyed. And then the third temple was called, anybody know? Anybody? Herod's temple. All you that went to Israel should know. Come on. Herod's temple. Herod's temple. And and Herod's temple was the most really magnanimous one out of all of them, but it was built by a Gentile. Um, And that was the temple that we see in Jesus' time. Okay? So think about that next time you're reading. There, there's there's the Solomon's temple, there's the post-exilic temple that was made by Zerubbabel, and then there's the third temple, which is Herod's temple. Just kind of an interesting little side note. But Solomon, building the temple for God, he spared no expense. He went all out. He went crazy. He imports supplies from all over the place, like the cedars of Lebanon. He brings in all kinds of, of imported goods to really trick out the temple. And the, tremple, the temple, in case you didn't know, the temple was a, a, a permanent physical uh, representation of the tabernacle. Okay? It, it was a stone, brick, and mortar version of what the tabernacle was. So all of the ornamentation, all of the things that you'll read about if you go back and read First Kings, which I hope you do, uh, all is there to represent heaven. Pictures and symbols of heaven in the temple that that were there to sort of illustrate this idea that the temple was heaven being brought to earth for a moment through the temple sacrifices. Now Solomon, in addition to building the temple, he also builds for himself a palace which just happens to be bigger than the temple. Um, Way to go, Solomon. And then we have this amazing scene in chapters 8 through 10, which is probably one of my favorite little sections in the book of Kings uh, that we don't have a ton of time to go into. But basically, Solomon um, sacrifices a whole herd of livestock to to sort of coronate and open up or whatever, the temple of God. And, And he says this big benediction and this giant prayer, and the sacrifices are made, and then the presence of God literally falls on the temple in a thick cloud. It's this amazing moment where God's manifest presence is seen. Super cool. Go back and read it, chapters 8 through 10. And then, chapter 11, we start to see Solomon go downward. As, as we seem, seems to be the theme of every man in the Bible. Uh, they seem to do some good things, and then they end up ultimately doing a lot of really bad things. And Solomon's failings are clearly laid out for us in chapter 11. Here's some of the things that he did. It really all started with this one Catastrophic mistake and issue that Solomon made. He married foreign women, okay? And that sounds really stupid if you don't know the Bible. What does that matter, you know? Uh, isn't that racist? Like, no, God knew, okay, God knew that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And when you marry someone that has a different understanding of truth than you, that your heart will lean towards where their heart is. So God specifically instructed Israel, do not marry outside of the tribes of Israel because you will adopt their gods. And what did Solomon do? He didn't just marry one. He married hundreds of foreign women with thousands of concubines, okay? He, he married all of these women with all of these different ideas of who God was with foreign, pagan, idolistic uh, gods, And in doing so, what happened was Solomon's heart began to shift away from God and to the false and pagan gods of his wives. And he started to allow them to build altars to sacrifice to their gods. And he began to even sacrifice to these gods. Over time, Solomon's heart and his life began to move away from God. It was ultimately his demise. In addition to that, Solomon was was kind of a tyrannical king. He heavily taxed his people. We know that because, as we'll see, when the next king goes to take over, the people are saying, hey, please don't tax us like Solomon. Please don't oppress us like Solomon. Okay, he was overbearing, he was a hard leader. Okay, so he had a lot of down moments. In ulti- we don't really know, I don't really know exactly how Solomon ended his life, but it didn't seem like he was in a great place from what we know about. Okay, uh, that's, that's his life. So that's chapters 1 through 11 is really the story of Solomon. And what Solomon's life really signifies is the beginning of the end of this period of the kingdom. Okay? This kingdom period of Israel, uh, it's the beginning of the end. Because what Solomon did in his life actually caused problems for his next successors, which would actually divide the kingdom, as we'll see, and cause all kinds of problems. So the next section in the book of 1 Kings is the split of the kingdom. The split of the kingdom. Now this seems like a, a minor detail, but this is a huge shift. Up until this point, Saul... David, Solomon were all rulers of the United Kingdom. One kingdom. All tribes under one rule, okay? Other than a few pockets here and there where David's son was, you know, rebelling and so on and so forth. But they were ultimately rulers of one kingdom. From this point forward, when you look at your little Old Testament story outline, it's bifurcated. It's split. Now we have two kingdoms. And you guys, I can't stress this enough. When you read, and please read, 1 Kings You will be so confused if you don't understand this. (laughs) When I first read Kings, which was in King James Version, which was stupid uh, to try to understand it in the King James Version anyways, I was reading it in the King James Version, and I was so confused. Why, Why? I didn't understand that it was going back and forth between this kingdom and the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And I didn't understand that when it said Israel, it wasn't talking about Israel in totality. It was talking about just the north. And I got so confused about it. i like, why, why is there two kings and what's going on? It's because I didn't understand back in the day when I first jumped into first kings that there's two kingdoms. So first kings really is the, the portrait, the picture of both of these kingdoms and it goes back and forth from king to king all throughout the story. So that's why that's so important to understand that the kingdom was split, okay? Now, knowing that, here's how it was split. Rehoboam was Solomon's son okay? Rehoboam was Solomon's son. And Rehoboam basically uh, goes to take over the throne, to take over the kingdom of Israel. And as doing such, the people come to him and say, please don't, as I said earlier, please don't tax us like your father. Please do not tax us like your father. And Solomon says, ah, too bad. I'm going to continue to do it. So because he continues to do that, another man, Jeroboam, takes 10 of the tribes of Israel and they head north and start their own kingdom. So now at this point, it splits. So the people have now spoken and now you you have Judah in the south where Jerusalem is and you have what is referred to as Israel in the north. Now here's where things started to go really bad. Jeroboam, the king in the north, says, well, we don't have Jerusalem anymore and Jerusalem is the holy city. So we're gonna set up for ourselves, our own version of Jerusalem. Except we're going to put golden calves in there. That always seems to work really well. Yeah, you know, great thinking. Like, that's just throw a golden calf in there. Uh, God always loves it when we do that. He's always very pleased. No, no, not at all. Uh, I don't know what they were thinking. And then it wasn't long before the southern kingdom, too, followed suit and began to put idol worship into their temples into Jerusalem. Ultimately, from this point forward, the idolatry, idol worship, worship of false gods is stitched into the DNA of every king that leads in Israel. Even the good kings, quote-unquote, in the book of Kings, still could not seem to get rid of the idols and the altars. Even the kings that tried to purify the land, they could never fully seem to get rid of and cleanse this idolatry that Israel was bent towards. And that's really the narrative of kings. Now, thirdly, the third section or movement in this book is the downward trajectory of, of the kingdom. And the downward trajectory of the kingdom uh, is something I can't really get into because it's literally peppered with king after king after king after king after king. Okay, that's why I gave you guys this. Because I do not have time to look at every single one of these kings. Uh, but kings will go through, some of them literally have like three sentences to their name, um, but some of them have a little bit more. So this will help you. It has the king of Judah, the king of Israel, the two different kings split apart, shows you when they ruled, when they reigned. Um, so get into it for yourself. But there's a large chunk of this book along with what we'll look at next week, 2 Kings, that is just king after king after king. But just all you need to know about them is it looks like this with an occasional blip, Okay they just get worse and worse and worse, kind of like the judges did, if you remember the judges, just get worse and worse and worse. This is the downward trajectory of Israel, embodied, though, almost primarily in one man, and his name was, dun-dun-dun, Ahab. Everybody say Ahab. Ahab was the, okay, the Bible says this, not me, okay, the worst king that ever lived. That's how would you like to be put down in the Bible as the worst king, okay? Worse than Saul, worse than all of them. The worst king. He embodied literally the low point of the low point of Israel's kingly uh, reign, kingdom reign. Here's what Ahab does. Here's why Ahab was such an abomination. I think I put that uh, in your your questionnaire. Why was Ahab's rule such an abomination? Well, for for a few specific reasons. Um, One, he, he marries a terrible foreign woman named Jezebel. Okay? Again, same mistake Solomon made. He marries outside of Israel, a woman that does not love God, does not respect God, a woman that is soaked in Baal worship and brings her Baal worship into the kingdom. She's a terrible woman, and there's a lot of things about her in the story. The second thing he does, he, con- he converts the entire northern kingdom into Baal worship, Okay, he, he takes the priests who were assigned to worship God, and he says, now your job is to minister to Baal. Okay, that's your job. And then he takes it one step further. He attempts to, and is largely successful at, murdering all of the prophets of God. Okay, this guy, who was really ultimately mostly controlled by his wife, not that that excuses him, was really out to completely destroy anything that had to do with authentic worship to God. He was a terrible, terrible, terrible man. Now, Ahab's story in the book of Kings overlaps with another man's story of great significance. And I can't really break them out because they literally, their story is tied together. And that second man is a prophet of God named Elijah. The most epic stories in the Bible are right here. Man, Elijah was the man. And next week, we'll look at Elisha, his predecessor. Even cooler stuff. I mean, this is like Pentecostals love Elijah. They're like, he calls down fire, and there's like storms and earthquakes. And see, like that's why there's gold dust at our church. I mean, like Pentecostals are all about Elijah. But we should be all about Elijah too because he's the man. And this is the manifest prophetic word of God, okay? So Elijah's story overlaps with uh, Ahab's story. And ultimately, God brought up and delivered Elijah because cleansing needed to take place. Things had gotten really bad under the rule and the reign of King Ahab, and Elijah is going to try to fix some of that. So here's what Elijah does. He prophesies drought over the kingdom of Israel. He says that from this point forward until Israel obeys, there will be no more water in the land, and no more water means no more food. No more food means people are suffering. This is a brutal time for Israel. They're struggling, people are dying, specifically the poor and the marginalized have nothing to eat, and this is during the time of Elijah and Ahab. Elijah sort of lives this secluded life, hiding out in the outskirts of civilization, like birds bring him food, which is just a crazy, he's kind of like, did you guys see the new Star Wars movie, uh, when, when at the very end, when uh, Luke Skywalker's like hiding up on a mountain, and he's all like haggard, that's Elijah, okay, um, literally, no, I'm just, I'm kidding, guys. Are you, are you awake? I'm joking. Luke is not Elijah. It's a, it's a joke. Um, anyways, picture that, though, okay? Like, this old, crusty, like, maybe Obi-Wan would be, a for you guys that are older and you watch the old series. Is there any older people in here? Um, sorry. <laughs> okay, o- Obi-Wan, like, this curmudgeon guy living in a swamp or whatever, maybe. Uh, okay, so that's Elijah. He's just, like, the force is strong with him. Um, Jeff's back there wes- whispering about me. This is going to be terrible. Okay, um... Anyways, that's Elijah, and Elijah basically takes on the prophets of Baal. This is like epic stuff. This is like, you got to go read this, okay? Elijah basically calls out Ahab, and he says, hey, either it's going to be God or it's going uh, to be Baal. Choose, and choose wisely, for you Indiana Jones fans, okay? Choose wisely. Is it going to be God or is it going to be Baal? So this is how it goes down. Elijah says, take your prophets prophets of Baal, hundreds of them, and, and build your altar, and then I'll build my altar, and then we will compete, and we'll see whose God can bring down fire to consume the sacrifice. So they build their altar, and they do all kinds of chants and incantations, and they cut themselves and do all these wild things for hours, hours, and what do you know? Nothing happens, because Baal doesn't exist, right? He doesn't exist. He's a false god, And then Elijah steps up to the plate. He says, oh yeah, watch this. Dumps water on his altar. Okay, water and fire. I don't know if you guys know this. They don't don't mix, right? Puts water on the altar three times. And then with a simple prayer, he calls down fire from heaven that consumes the offering. And all of the prophets of Baal are like, we served the wrong God. All of the people of Israel are stunned by this magnificent display of the power of God. And they instantly convert back and say, okay, we want to serve God. What do we do? Elijah says, first things first, track down all of those prophets in Baal and get rid of them. Okay? So they get rid of all of the prophets of Baal. And and Israel seems to have this turn. But unfortunately, because um, all of the prophets of Baal have been killed, guess who's not very happy about that? Jezebel. Which means, guess who else is not very happy about that? Ahab, her husband, okay? So now, Elijah becomes sort of this outlaw, running from them, trying to hide from them. But because, as God said, if, they would t- if Israel would turn back to the Lord, then the water would come back, they turn back to the Lord, and guess what happens? The water comes back. It's super good news. There's so much more here, uh, but basically, just to sum it up really quickly, God prophesies that Ahab and Jezebel will die in a very specific way, in a very specific field. Ends up happening exactly how God says that it's going to happen. God takes them out, moves them out from leadership, and that sort of ends the book of Kings. Okay? You guys got it? Man. Um. I know it's a lot, but it's a lot, right? What can I do? So there's one specific piece now, kind of turning from the narrative of the book a little bit. Um, there's one specific piece to this book that I kind of want to zoom in with you guys and just just talk a little bit about in the last few few minutes. And and what I want you to think about in processing all of that, okay, everything that we just kind of took in, um, is really this reality that that people are influential. Okay, the kings really influenced the kingdom. They influenced Israel in in, in profound ways. I mean, obviously, uh, Solomon was able to influence the kingdom in large ways. David was able to influence the kingdom in large ways. And I want you guys to listen to this. You are influential humans. Whether you think that you are or not, you have a great ability to influence people. But in addition to that, you are also easily influenced We learned that with Solomon and his wives. His wives easily influenced him towards Baal and worshiping of Baal. So because of that reason, you have to be aware of that. I can influence people, but I'm easily influenced. Everybody got that? I can influence people, but I'm also influenced by people. And the other problem is, is that in our nature, our deep desires, unfortunately, are often to be influenced wrongly. We like to be influenced wrongly. We like to be influenced in ways that tickle our ears, that, that really make us happy. Here's one of the things that really was a downfall for King Ahab. Okay, one of the worst kings ever, right? Ahab surrounded himself not only with prophets of Baal, but with false prophets. With prophets that would tell him what he wanted to hear. So when he is thinking about going to battle uh, against the Syrians, and he partners up with this guy, uh, Jehoshaphat, he, he goes to these prophets and they lie to him. They tell him what he wants to hear. They say, yeah, go ahead. Go into battle. You'll be great. And he ends up dying. That's how he ends up dying, ultimately, in the end of his life. He surrounded himself with false prophets. Because we are so easily influenced, and because our nature, our sinful nature, is to want to be influenced in the way that we want, we love to be lied to if it means that we feel good about ourselves. Because of that reason, listen, we need the prophetic word of God to be injected into our life Daily daily, there is a reason that the prophets are on the scene in the book of Kings, because God knows the wickedness of man's heart, and God knows that the kings will lead Israel into the ground like they did. And for that reason, the prophets were there to bring forth and hold forth the real and raw and honest word of God in the face of the kings while they were destroying the kingdom. And that is what Elijah is that's why God sent Elijah into the scene. Now, what is the prophetic word of God? I just want to dig into this really quickly. What is the prophetic word of God? In the Old Testament, the prophets were not bringing some kind of new thinking. Did you know that the prophets weren't bringing some kind of new, uh, you know, knowledge? They, they weren't. Uh, sometimes they were. Sometimes they were. Pro- prophesying of things that were gonna happen, but oftentimes they were just bringing to the attention of the kings things that God had already said. So for instance, with Elijah and the drought, he didn't say, you know what? I think Israel should be in a drought. God said in the law that if Israel turned away from me, I will dry up your wells. I'll dry up your rivers. That was something God had already said in the law. And Elijah literally just manifested that truth to the kings and said, guess what? God is doing what God said he was gonna do. That is the prophetic word of God. It's literally manifesting or bringing to light what God has already said. The same thing with the exile, right? God already told Israel, "If you guys continue to disobey with me, I disobey me, I will uproot you out of your homeland." And he did it with the Babylonians. Now, the same is true for the prophetic word of God today in our lives. God brings up these truths in the word and inserts them into our lives in a way that makes them real to us. It's like 3D glasses that take a 2D drawing and all of a sudden bring it to life, okay? Uh, It's real, it happens. God takes things from just simply being a story or just simply being a truth or a piece of knowledge, like I said in the beginning, a piece of knowledge. And he says, through the prophetic aspect of my word, now I'm going to manifest myself to you in a way that's real, in a way that's life-changing. But here's the thing I want you guys to know, okay? Here's the thing I want you to know about the prophets and about the prophetic word of God. It brings crisis and it brings conflict. Okay, a lot of times we think, God, I just want to hear from you because if I hear from you everything will be good and happy and, and, and roses and unicorns and rainbows and all those kinds of things. But the reality is when you look at the prophets, oftentimes they weren't bringing good news. They weren't bringing good news. They were bringing, they were bringing truth into a scene that did not want truth. The reality of the prophetic word of God is that it brings conflict, it brings crisis. Elijah was hated by the king, he was hated because he was bringing the truth into that moment the prophetic word of god is reaching his literally him reaching his hands into your heart in a way that feels very unnatural and uncomfortable okay there's a difference between me sitting down and reading a bible verse and saying oh that's really cool i'll log that to memory and then reading that verse again when god by the holy spirit literally reaches into my heart and begins to make it beat there's a difference there's a difference that is the prophetic word of God. When God takes the 2D image of a biblical truth and brings it to life and makes it real. It's, sim- it's so different than gaining knowledge. I'll-, I'll prove it to you like this. Jesus was the ultimate example of this, was he not? He encountered all kinds of different people, right? He encountered all kinds of different people and every time he encountered somebody, he left them at a crossroads. He never just bumped into somebody and had a conversation with someone, and and, and it was shallow, and then he moved on. Jesus had the ability, literally, to reach into the heart of that person and to wake them up prophetically in a way that challenged them. For example, uh, when the disciples uh, were, were, were sitting around listening to Jesus, he says, Hey, eat my flesh, drink my blood, talking about the crucifixion. It offended them, and they left, Why did it offend them? Because it was the prophetic word of God. It was not just a a, a piece of knowledge or truth. They left and Jesus turns to his 12 and he says, are you going to leave as well? And they say, what? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Like, Like you're not like the other rabbis that are just quoting things, quoting knowledge. You are seemingly, you have the words that actually bring life. You have the words that actually change, so he brought them to a crossroads. When Jesus encountered the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because the prophetic word of God through Jesus caused him to have to make a decision. It wasn't just some kind of knowledge that he could heap on to his life. The disciples call, Jesus says, leave your nets and follow me or don't. It's like, boom, brick wall, left to right. That's the prophetic word of God. It's when God speaks in such a way that you literally have to change. Something has to happen from it. That is the prophetic word of God. To Nicodemus, he says, be born again. You literally have to be born again. Nicodemus is so confused by that. And the prophetic word of God is terrifying because what it is is it singles you out of a crowd, which is the most terrifying thing that anyone could ever do. Anthony, Just kidding. Isn't that feel terrible? (laughs) He's like, oh my God. (laughs) I wasn't listening to anything that was just said. No, Um, I don't blame you. Um, Singled out of the crowd. That is that feeling of the prophetic. And sometimes it feels crazy. Uh, uh, Don't go weird with this, okay? I'm talking about when God literally reaches into your heart and says, hey, I'm talking to you. It's the moment when Jesus is walking through the crowd and he stops and says, who touched me? Can you imagine this woman, right, who wasn't supposed to be touching anyone because she had this issue of blood and she brought what was considered uncleanness? And and here's this rabbi, stops in the middle of the crowd, everyone's silent, looks down at this woman who's touching Jesus' robe. And she's singled out. That's the prophetic word of God. Hey, stop. Who's touching me? It's when you're in a room and and, and the word is being preached or or you're reading the word or you're listening to a song or something is happening and God says, hey, you. No, 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 no. no. Not your group. Not your church. Not America. Not not your culture. No, you. You're the one I'm talking to right now. You're the one I'm tapping on the shoulder. I want to talk to you. That feels terrifying in that moment. Like, oh my gosh, God is talking to me. It's not this warm, fuzzy, like, oh, I know what my calling is in life now. It's like, hey, I'm right here. Are we going to talk? And not only is it terrifying, but sometimes it's the most amazing and relieving thing that could ever happen because you realize that the God of the universe is talking to you. He's talking to you and he's engaging you. The prophetic word of God is the first thing to be destroyed, though, for that reason, right? We would rather read something that does not challenge us with the reality of Christ oftentimes. Because when you are challenged with the reality of Christ, you have to do something. That's why Paul said to the Thessalonians, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. He's not talking about, don't despise the little old lady who says, you know, you're going to have Chinese food for dinner. That's not what he's talking about. He says, don't despise it when God speaks to you in a way that you know is for you. Respond to it. Don't shut it up. Don't shut it down. I only have a few minutes. I want to try to answer this question quickly. How do you hear the prophetic voice of God? Because guys, we are postured in the place where the kings were. We are postured in a place where if we are left to our own rule and reign, we will spiral down. And we need the word of God. Not just the knowledge of the Bible, but we need the real and raw and honest and life-changing hands of God to reach into our hearts and begin to wake us up how do we access that? I I can't do an exhaustive on this, but here's just two quick things. Two quick things. The first is this. The prophetic word of God is seen through meditating on Jesus Christ. The prophetic word of God is seen through meditating on Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter one, one and two says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The emphasis of the prophet's job in the Old Testament was to point everyone back to the law. Prophecy now for the new covenant Christian is the Holy Spirit pointing us not to the law, but to the fulfiller of the law. To the one who lived the law perfectly for us, like we learn in Leviticus. The one that who fulfilled the Levitical priesthood, the code, all of those things, did it perfectly. That's what it is. It's manifested in Christ. He is the embodiment, as we learned on Sunday. He is the manifestation of God's nature. It's not some weird, ethereal, quirky, weird thing to say that God has a prophetic voice. His prophetic voice largely is Christ. You want to know what God's will for your life is? Look at Christ. You want to know what God thinks about your sin? Look at Christ and how did he deal with it? You want to know what God thinks about injustice in the world? Look at Christ. He is the manifestation of God's voice. He is the language of God. He is the illustration of God's heart and nature in every way. And he is how we hear and see the prophetic voice of God. But let me tell you, it leaves you at a crossroads. If it doesn't leave you at a crossroads, you're not looking at Jesus. You're looking at something else. If you read this book and you experience Christ and it does not bring you to a crisis in your life, you're not experiencing Jesus. If you don't squirm, I can't think of a better word. If you don't squirm when you think about the reality of what Jesus actually said, It is scandalous what Jesus actually said. We are not meant to sit comfortably. We aren't. You're not meant to sit comfortably. You are meant to sit in a tension where you say, I am so torn between my old man and my new man. I see the calling of God and I can't measure up. I see what God demands of me of holiness and I don't measure up. Exactly, that's living within the prophetic word of God when you are not comfortable. Because when you're comfortable is when God's not speaking. If you feel comfortable, God is probably not speaking. It's when you're uncomfortable that God is speaking through your pain and through your struggle. That's where he wants you because that's where you listen. That's where you open your ears to hear him. Jesus is Emmanuel, he's God with us. Everything about God is now seen through Christ. Therefore, prophecy, listen, is simply now the Holy Spirit revealing Christ through us and in us. And as we behold him, we become like him. In the book of First John I'm just going to read this to you guys. I thought of this five minutes before I came down here. In the, in the book of First John, this is this amazing statement that John says. Um, I grabbed these off of my shelf. These were two things that I brought back from Israel. Okay, and, and, and here's what Israel was for me. Israel was Israel was me taking these stories that I'd read, and that seemed very like ish and, and it was them slapping me in the face and saying, I'm real. It was Jesus saying, hey, these things that you've read about, they happened. As I'm standing on the steps where Jesus would have walked up to the temple, as I'm, I'm standing above Peter's house, I'm thinking, this is real. And, and I remember our tour guide encouraged us at a few different places. He said, reach down and grab, grab a piece of pottery. Grab a piece of rubble from Caesarea where Jesus would have stood. Grab a piece of pottery from Megiddo where the Valley of Armageddon is going to go down and handle it and take it home, and remember, and and what I do is I I put this on my shelf, and I'm thinking about this, like this, I am holding and beholding the reality of of the fact that this really happened. And what John says, and he opens up his epistle, he says this, that which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was the Father and was manifest to us. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, this Jesus, this isn't something we're just making up. He's real. We've handled him. Our hands have gone into where the the nails were pierced. He's physically real. And because of that, everything changes. Everything changes. My second point is this. Come on up, Aaron. My second point is this. The prophetic word of God is wrestling. It's a wrestling match with the fact that God is real. And because he's real, we have to decide what to do with that. We have to decide what to do with that because like this, we've handled him. It's not some ethereal thing that we just thought about or talked about or read about or it's, it's what our church believes or it's what my parents believe or it's what my wife believes. But Christianity is realizing that Christ is real. And because he's real, it demands change. Because of what he's done for us, it demands change because we have handled the reality of who he is. And that looks like a wrestling match. It looks like a wrestling match. I was having a conversation with my wife about what what do we want our kids to to learn? What's our win for our kids? And And I just literally felt like this moment of clarity where I realized, you know what I want my kids to grow up seeing me and remembering me as? Someone who wrestled with God. Not someone who just sat comfortably and read devotions that tickled my ears. Not someone who just read the parts that I liked out of the Bible. Not someone who just pretended like I had all my theology figured out. But someone who, who, who groaned over what this thing says and how in the world am I supposed to, to serve a God that's so holy. It groans over the verses that talk about taking care of the poor and the, and, and, and the marginalized and, and the verses that call us to justice and, and the verses that call us to, to the holiness of God and the verses that call us up to his glory and, and, and the calls to worship, to groan over those things and say, God, I can't. That's what I want my kids to see. I want them to see my weakness. I want them to see me struggling to actually, to actually because it's challenging me to live it out. If they don't, then I'm probably not really listening to the word of God. Listen to this. If you are not wrestling with God, if you are not wrestling with God, then you're not listening to God. If you're not wrestling with God, then you are not listening to God. The prophetic word of God is when you are challenged, challenged by your inadequacy, challenged by your flesh, challenged by your sinfulness, and then God in that moment can reveal himself to you. That's the reality of the prophetic word of God. That's the soil in which the seed can take root. That's the soil that we need to be. And that comes through humility and through brokenness. So we only have a few minutes. It's going to be very quick, but we'll do one song. And I want to invite you guys now, not just to get up and get your kids and whatever, but I want to invite you guys to encounter the real God tonight. Take him off of the pages and make him real. Do work with God tonight. The communion tables are open. We're gonna play one song. Get your, get your communion. We have literally six, we have seven minutes before we have to get our kids. You're fine. Come and get communion. Be with Jesus tonight. Encounter the real Jesus. Listen for the prophetic word of God tonight. Understand who Jesus is and let's do work with him, amen? Let's bring the lights down and, and let's, let's do this.